welcome to this week's episode of Swig of Intellect. I'm Patrick DeButler, and I'm here with Lisa Gray. Hello, Patrick. How are you? Hello, Lisa. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well. What a week, listeners. Thanks again for joining us for a Swig of Intellect, your conversation companion. We'll share the news you need to know, give you insights into your media sources, and share a couple of shots of culture, ensuring that you have something else to talk about besides the presidential election. There was an election, Lisa? Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> should talk about it we on today's podcast. I had no idea. <laughs> we wanted to apologise to our listeners for our delay, but Patrick and I woke up yesterday morning and said, we need to let this election set up, sort itself out before we talk about it. So thank you for your patience. This week, well, we'll cover the election result um, so far. We will cover our first day in lockdown series two and America leaves the Paris Accord. But first, I'm, I think it's my turn to do the source review, isn't it? Yes, it's your turn to do the source review. So what have you got, us, uh, what have you got for us this week, Lisa? I wanted to look at Rolling Stone. Um, Yeah, so it's a little bit more niche than the mainstream sources that we pick, but it's a favourite of mine. So here we go. So Rolling Stone is an American monthly magazine that focuses on popular culture. It was founded in San Francisco, California in 1967 by Ryan Werner and the music critic Ralph J. Gleason. It was the first known for its coverage of rock music and for political reporting by Hunter S. Thompson. In the, in the 1990s, the magazine broadened and shifted its focus to a younger readership interested in youth-oriented television shows um, and popular music. It's since returned to its traditional mix of content, including music, entertainment and politics. The first magazine was released in 1967 and featured John Lennon on the cover and was published every two weeks. It is known for its provocative photography and its cover photos featuring musicians, politicians, athletes and actors. In addition, its print version in the in the United States, it publishes content through rollingstone.com and numerous international editions. Um, Pesk Media Corporation is the current owner of Rolling Stone, purchasing 51% of the magazine in 2017 and the remaining 49% in 2019. Um, to get it off the ground, Werner borrowed 7,500 from his own family and for his soon-to-be wife, Jane. The first issue was released on November 9th, 1967, and as I said, it featured John Lennon in a costume for the How I Won the War on the cover. It was in newspaper format and was a lead article on the Monterey Pop Festival. Uh, the cover price for it was 25 cents, uh, which is the equivalent to about two, $2 American now, and it was published uh, bi-weekly. The tone of the of Rolling Stone has changed over the years. Uh, in its first issue, where it uh, explained that the title of the magazine was referred to the 1950s blues song Rolling Stone, according to Muddy Waters, and Bob Dylan's 1965 hit Like a Rolling Stone in, 19, in 2017 article celebrating the publication's 50th anniversary. David Brown stated that the magazine's name was a nod to the Rolling Stones in addition to Rolling Stone and Like a Rolling Stone. So obviously um, both songs were quite political. So in between 1980 and 1999, it changed from um, less, it went from being um, a political magazine to being a bit more of an entertainment magazine. Before 1970s, you had uh, pro- uh, prolific writers like Contrast Thompson contributing to the political section. Um, Thompson first published the most famous work, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, within the pages of Rolling Stone. 
um, where he remained a contributing editor until his death in 2005. And you know what, Patrick? I actually remember that um, that that uh, that Rolling Stone um, um, editorial when he passed away. It was very. It was one of my earliest memories. Um, Rolling Stone was known for its musical coverage and for Thompson's political reporting. And in 1985, they hired an advertising agency to refocus the image under perception reality. So definitely at that point, it went from being the political music editorial to something a little bit more mainstream and entertainment. Um, And that was to do with um, driving advertising dollars, like a lot of publications we've seen and we've reviewed. Um, Rolling Stone initially identified and reported to hippie counterculture the era and it distanced itself from underground newspapers at the time, embracing more of a traditional journalistic standards and avoiding radical politics of underground press. In its first edition, Werner wrote that Rolling Stone is not just about the music, but about the attitudes that the music embraces. So for me, Rolling Stone um, as is, you know, is, is has been a really, really important part of my my references, especially with my career and work in music. Every time I indulged in any content that had a brand Rolling Stone attached to it, I'd always been satisfied. Its underlying tone of the role that music plays in our lives, be it to create more joy, more debate or more provocative thought, is, is my heaven. For someone who used to lose my patience in reading any long articles, I would always commit to reading a full editorial in Rolling Stone. Um, as I always knew that they had something important to say. I must admit, though, I haven't, since Hunter S. Thompson stopped contributing, I haven't purchased um, as many Rolling Stones as I used to. Uh, the only criticism is that um, I would like them to go back to a bit more political thought pieces, but that's that's just my personal preference. How, what, have you uh, indulged in a Rolling Stone magazine? Or yes, I, I, used to, I used to read uh, Rolling Stone magazine a lot, actually. I've read literally, I think, almost every single word Hunter S. Thompson's ever written. Uh, he's one of my favourite writers of all time. So I know all the pieces he did um, and all the incredible stories of him going into Rolling Stone magazine with fire extinguishers and attacking staffers and all the madness that Hunter S. Thompson brought with him. Um, I, I always thought it was excellent. I used to read a lot of the pieces they would do on the Iraq war. You had pieces by uh, writers like Jeremy Scahill who wrote about Blackwater and Rolling Stone would publish these really interesting long pieces about corruption uh, in the Iraq war. Matt Taibbi, who is really the spiritual heir to, um, to Hunter S. Thompson, who really tries to take over that role, who's done some fantastic ones like the Vampire Squid article about Goldman Sachs. Um, I think Rolling Stone had some of the punchiest liberal uh, political pieces and, you know, really long in-depth ones. And it's still it's still pretty good in that way. Um, I haven't read it so much uh, since I've been back in the UK. I used to read it a bit more in America because I always thought they were very good pieces. Um, for the musical side, I, I thought they were often had interesting stuff, but it was less why I would read it. I would read it much more for the political um, articles, and I really liked it. But as I said, it's it's been a few years since I've read it. I do read some of the pieces that come up, especially the Matt Taibbi ones. Um, but apart from that, I, I'd have to sort of go back and have a look at it now. But I, I always really enjoyed it. Like you, uh, for the political content, it was one thing that I, I really enjoyed Rolling Stone articles. I also think it's one of the few instances where music and politics have got the mix right. Um, often sometimes, you know, and I guess we've seen this a lot in the current presidential election campaigning that sometimes a music a musician or a artist will tag themselves onto a political conversation and it can feel quite awkward if it doesn't feel like it fits but I feel like as a brand Rolling Stone have got um have mutually respected politics as well as music at the same time which I think is a really important mix to get right yeah I agree 
I agree. And I think it's something that it, it did well as a magazine, yeah, and hopefully still does. Yeah. So, okay, so Rolling Stone is has is, is gotten a tick from us. <laughs> <laughs> and now on to Swig of the News. Uh, so we deliberately delayed our recording, as I said earlier in the um, in the podcast, because we had no idea on how to read the election results yesterday. Uh, we still kind of don't. Um, on the morning of day three, no presidential winner has been declared, but it looks like Biden will will definitely win and Trump will definitely sue. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see what it means. But as as you say, it's it's always really interesting covering an American election because it does normally take a few days afterwards. And, and in our case, we just felt it was fairer to do a podcast today when things look much clearer, uh, for sure. And it does look like Biden will probably pull it off. I mean, he's so close now. It would be very surprising, um, I think, if he didn't win it. And given the states, um, and I think some of the results have been really interesting on the states. We'll see what happens with Trump. I'm really surprised um, what how how well the system has held up in a way. I think the Supreme Court decisions and the court decisions on on recounts and etc. are really interesting. Um, and for example, with Wisconsin, um, you know, former Governor Scott Walker, who is a Trump ally, did say, "Look, uh, the recount won't mean anything. The margin is way too large." Uh, Biden's winning it with over 20,000 votes and that just means it's over I mean you can have a recount but it won't change anything the last two times there were recounts there I think it changed votes by about 121 and the other one was 100 and something as well so the margin of victory is big enough for for Biden Um, but it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the next few days uh, I think but I'm pretty certain as well that Biden, Biden has it now I wanted to do a shout out to you though, Patrick, because all the predictions before, you know, in my circle were like Biden by a landslide and you were like, it's going to be really, really close. So I want to give you the credit you deserve that you are closest to what's actually looking like it's going to happen. Um, so well, well done, bravo. Thank you. I'm flattered. Uh- <laughs> no, I to give credit when credit's due. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, and I think it's, for me, it's signifying the end of the Trump reign is when he did make that false announcement that he's won. A lot of heavyweight Republicans got on Twitter and social media straight away and said that we do not endorse the fact that he did that. Um, people that I I thought I think were really standing by his side during the impeachment process that I thought would never do that. So that I found very interesting. And then at the same time, I think a lot of people did think that because of everything that's been going on, that, that Biden would have a, a, a fairer lead and he hasn't. And I think that's going to, you know, there's a great article that we've included in our links today about, you know, and the headline is if Trump wins the election, Trumpism wins. But if Trump loses the election, Trumpism wins too. Um, it's definitely, I think America was, has definitely been impacted by by his influence. I, I Listen, I, I think it's it's always the thing, there's always a bit of, all these articles come out after an election, and especially when the results are sort of coming in. And I think it's a big question for everyone, especially what happens with Trumpism. And for example, just coming back to your, your first um, point and statement about Trump declaring victory, that's not unusual at all in American politics. In fact, that tends to be I'd say Republicans tend to do it more often, but it tends to be the line that you try and declare early because it m- motivates things psychologically. And it's a big part of the American system that you you go and, and you say early the problem with it, which is really interesting, is that the numbers just didn't didn't allow it. For example, in 2000, it was slightly different because in Florida, things were so close. 
And, you know, Bush, for those who will remember, and there are lots of really good movies about this and, and articles, but um, Bush managed to send a lot of people into Florida to, to really push on this psychological aspect that we declare victory and we won. And he got a concession call from Al Gore and that really played. And then Al Gore rescinded that afterwards. And, and there's been a big lesson from that in politics. So I think Trump decided to really push the thing, but it wasn't the right time. But what I'm very surprised at is it's true that the Republican establishment, and I wonder if this is sort of payback for 2016, because Trump decimated the Republican establishment in 2016. I mean, he absolutely murdered it and left it for dead on the side of the road. Um, I wonder if this is sort of a slight revenge of saying, you know, we support you while you're in office. But when the election came to it, it they've been pretty well behaved, uh, considering where a lot of people thought things would go. And um, Yes, I did call that it would be really close. And that's just because in American politics, things are very, very close. And, and the idea that a landslide would happen, in my opinion, is impossible in modern American politics. I mean, for a real landslide, you have to go back to Reagan in 84, when America was quite different politically. Um, since 2000, things have been on a razor's edge. Uh, but what I didn't say, I thought Trump had a slight advantage. I'm really surprised that Biden picked up Arizona, uh, which I think is huge. The moment he picked up Arizona, it really changed the roadmap um, in the Electoral College. And I took me completely by surprise. Um, and uh, But we'll see, we'll see what happens from here. But I, I do think the system has really sort of come back a bit closer to the center, shall we say, after, after the years of Trumpism. But what will happen with Trumpism is really interesting because... It, Biden has had the most votes of any candidate in history, which is huge and also very exciting. The turnout is incredibly exciting that so many people have turned out. But it also means that Donald Trump is the candidate with the second most votes ever in history. So it's not like, you know, there was a, a big rejection of Donald Trump. In point of fact, more people voted for Trump than any other candidate in history except for Joe Biden, uh, yeah. which is another way. But whether what happens with Trumpism as a philosophy is really... Interesting. As as we said, he really, over the last four years, has brought the Republican Party with him. He's changed the tone of politics dramatically. Um, in 2016, because he beat the establishment so easily, will that mean that, you know, there'll be a lot of copycat candidates of Trump? Will Trump try and come back in four years? Will he even be interested? I think there's so many open questions with, with what's going to happen now with, with Donald Trump and his sort of political legacy. And Well, on, on, yeah, and on the weekend, he made a, a categorical statement that it won't be Kamala Harris that's the first female president. It will be Ivanka Trump. Well, I know he's he's pushing Ivanka Trump really hard, I think. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, I th also that's quite a funny thing in American politics. I, I know people love doing the sort of Chelsea Clinton versus Ivanka and, and all the thing, but... Uh, yeah, well, you never know. I think Donald Trump has really proved you never know in American politics what can happen. Uh, so let's see, maybe it might be Ivanka's turn next time. Absolutely. The other article we'll include um, in today's uh, podcast is there's a, the movement for first past the post is really picking up. I've read a couple of articles about it in the last couple of weeks, really questioning the Electoral College. Um, well, look, you know, they've been doing it for a long time. We don't know if it will happen, but I... Um, but yeah, it's something that we'll watch. Sorry, do you mean do you mean a popular vote rather than first yes. pass? Because first pass the post is is what we have here in the UK in the parliamentary system where where you're right. It's it's first past the post, but it, it means something slightly different in the UK, which would be that uh, in the UK, for example, it would be the most seats that would win it, not the popular vote. The popular uh -huh. vote tends to win it in the UK, and we call it first past the post. But yes. In America, it's always been the big debate about uh, getting rid of the Electoral College. As we talk about on most shows about America, constitutional change so rarely happens on that level. 
whether they'll ever get rid of the electoral college, I'm not so sure. Uh, but it's true. It makes for, so many people get confused on every election. I was talking to people yesterday during the vote, like, what's going on with the, the, the electoral college? You know, you have to explain it. And it's quite funny. Every four years, uh, I, I know that you, everybody spends an inordinate amount of time trying to explain what the electoral college is. Yeah. And, and why it my, came about. One of my really good friends who used to be in politics said that the Electrical College makes it easier for people to win. Um, and he thinks it absolutely should go. And, and, um, and, and he, you know, he felt it when he was working in politics, let alone now not seeing, you know, what kind of results can play and how it can skew. So anyway, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see where it takes us. Um, and now on to day one of our lockdown series two. Yeah. <laughs> We're back. Before before we go to what's going on in the UK, we do want to say we do want to share that United States yesterday set a one day record for the new coronavirus cases on Wednesday, with at least 102,591 new cases and hospitals in several states reported an increasing number of patients, according to account from the news agency. So it's um, still it's still going strong in the US. There's going to be. I was reading this morning. There's going to be some more severe lockdown rules and regulations. The police are going to come and get us um, uh, amid um, rule breaking, including raves. One rave attracted a thousand people in East London on the weekend, and another in West Country saw attacks on police who tried to close it down. So as um, as Boris Johnson was getting the legislation through in Parliament. Yesterday, he was also making giving um, police uh, um, some more power to help instill this next month. I think the the tone of this lockdown is very different from the first one. I mean, I remember the when the lockdown, the first one came, everything was so quiet outside. People were really respectful of it. You know, there was enormous amounts of social distancing and, and really people staying away from each other. This time it feels really different. Um, you know, in Parliament, Theresa May yesterday was part of the 34 Tory rebels who voted against the lockdown. Mm. Um, so the government won with a big majority, but still, uh, you know, the former Prime Minister, uh, Theresa, voted against. And there's enough feeling of discontent around it. Uh, certainly in the people I've spoken to recently, a lot of people are very worried that it will be extended way into December and, and possibly through Christmas. And I think a lot of people are much more you know, then they're, they're going to be much more relaxed about things. So it'll be really interesting to see how that works with the police and how strict they get. Um, so it's going to be up in the air, but it's definitely going to be a different uh, lockdown than the first one. I think so. I also think people are like, I went to, I went shopping yesterday, all that there was still toilet paper, there was still resources. <laughs> it was pretty crazy and hectic. But at the same time, I think people have a better idea of what they're going into. Um, and, and to be honest, I up until yesterday, I only heard from friends of mine who worked in hospital institutions that um, that they were they weren't as busy um, as they were leading into the first lockdown. But there were reports that came out um, yesterday that um, England were treating ten thousand nine hundred seventy one inpatients with COVID, and NHS England pointed out that this was more than half of the 18,970 such cases in hospitals they had on the 12th of April. So it seems in the last couple of days, um, the health service in England is due to go back to a level four alert status on midnight. Um, this move means that NHS response to the resurgence of the pandemic has been handled nationally rather than regionally. So it's starting to trickle through into hospitals and I'm starting to feel a little bit like, you know, not 100, I'm not, ha- not 100% happy about the lockdown, but 
I think you can see that the, the, the cases are growing. There's a bit more evidence showing that the cases are growing. Yes, um, but I would I would just disagree because I've had a lot of conversations and 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 uh, with hospitals and etc. in London and and the the cases they're absolutely fine so far. Even at the moment with, with the upsurge in cases, for example, the Nightingale hospitals have hardly been used. There's a huge excess of beds. Um, the NHS protocols for it are fine, and as we spoke about last week, the deaths of NHS staff are exactly in the same place as they were last year pre-COVID, um, so at, at around 0.0004. And so again, this is part of the thing that I think a lot of people are getting upset with, and especially I, I would argue I am, which is all these stories are coming about alert levels coming back and, and etc., and that the NHS is suffering. The NHS is absolutely bang on where it is usually without coronavirus in terms of hospital care, in terms of cases coming in. It's not like there's a massive overwhelming of cases coming into the NHS. It's just not the fact. Uh, the St. Mary's any say that perfectly fine with the routine that's going on. Nothing has changed for them in the last few weeks. And even uh, the excess cases for winter, which they're completely prepared for, would have happened anyway. Winter cases come in for the flu and other things. What they're more worried about is, for example, hospital locations for children have changed. So if your child has an accident, now some hospitals are closed to them, even though those hospitals aren't overwhelmed with COVID cases, which means you would have to take your child all the way across London. And so, you know, this is a big part of my problem with what's going on in the media. I, I think the media is not, I th- in this case, I think it's the media is not so prepared. It's not scientifically literate. It's very much based on sensationalism. And a lot of these things are very inaccurate and people are given to worry. The NHS is not uh, suffering over any more than usual on the winter cases and on the COVID cases. It's just not. Uh, and it's what the NHS themselves are saying. The alert levels have to do with government policy, but government policy, the way it's being set at the moment, is not, you know, uh, in my opinion, it's it's very reactionary. It's reacting to things. It's not setting it properly. And there are tons of people who are very unhappy um, with Having government policy. Having to the presidential election uh, result, like over the last, 20, uh, last 48 hours, in between it, they were doing um, press conference from NHS hospitals. And up until yesterday, I... I would have, yeah, I completely agree with you, but it seems like, you know, and maybe it is an alignment in in the policy and it might be a political agenda more than the truth, but it does seem like um, the the pressure is starting to to um, to increase. So we just have to see, yeah, yeah it's, it's, I feel, um, I wish I felt more clarity and more definite, you know, leadership of, of, of how this is being handled. Um, I think I, I completely agree with you in terms of the illiteracy um, of of the information that we're getting, um, how we're being told this information and the consistency in it. It all still feels a lot really, really messy. But um, yeah, it was it was yeah, there was some I'll try and find some of the um some of the video content to include so people can have a look at it and see what they think. No, absolutely. And and we should. I, I think in this case, my criticism is really very much to do with a government policy, which I think is not being set in the best way, and then be the media reaction. And the media could talk about so many other things, as we always say. This year, the suicide rate is somewhere around 800,000, which is much higher than usual. Mental health going into winter, not discussed at all. And the financial aspect, as, as I keep on repeating, and I think it's something that is fundamentally important, the NHS relies 
on tax money. It has to be funded somehow. And, you know, the economy through the winter is going to suffer brutally again. And, you know, now maybe the papers aren't talking about it. Nobody's discussing it. But next year, this will come up when it comes to NHS funding. uh, Because, you know, if the economy goes into the tank, the most valuable institution that we have, the most popular institution in the UK, will suffer dramatically from lack of funding. And that will affect all the other diseases. So where we're all spending time, spending huge amounts of time on COVID, we're not talking about the million women who've missed breast cancer screenings. We're not talking about the people who are dying of other flu diseases, who are dying of cancer, who are dying of other things. There's so much going on. And the media view is so narrow. And that's what upsets me. Um, I think we need to talk about so many other things. Last week, sorry. No, sorry, sorry, go on. I was just saying, I only heard last week that now the, um, the, the leading cause of death of women, 15 to 19-year-old in the UK is suicide. Hmm. And that's, that's gone up because of COVID. And I, I absolutely 100% agree with you about not just looking at the medical, but looking at the financial and the mental health consequences that have come out of this. And so I guess as our little media brand, Patrick, we will do our best to cover. We'll do our best, exactly. Yeah. Um, and on to our ongoing exploration of countries that are going doing it better than the UK. Um, we I came across a really interesting article in Wired about Sweden. Um, this is a com- this is an ongoing conversation that Patrick and I are having. They talked about you know that maybe Sweden is not going as well as it could, as as well as we think it is. Patrick, you raised a really important point just before we we started recording about how comparatively the statistics in this article are are pretty similar to what would be happening in a non-COVID year. Well, yes, exactly. And the the thing is, they're taking data, which we've already heard before. No one said that Sweden is perfect. Even the Swedish government have said, of course, there have been uh, a rise in spikes in deaths in the elderly and etc. But the statistics are not that uh, aberrant compared to what they usually are to warrant the Wired article, which is highly negative of Sweden. And it's very funny because the American press in particular, um, we've spoken about the Wired article. This is the Wired article. And there was the article which was in, um, sorry, was, oh. will you remind me which other publication? Uh, was it Time magazine, I think? Yeah, yeah. Time. We're yeah. really aggressively going after Sweden, which is, first of all, ironic given what's going on in America. Uh, you know, look to thine own, own house first before you complain about others because America's response is nobody's idea of what should be going on in a in a first world country in terms of response to COVID. But Sweden is definitely not, you know, the article, if you were to read it, it's almost like Sweden is about to crumble and fall into the ocean and, and be gone forever. And that's not the case. As I've said, I've known quite a few people. I've got friends who know quite a few people who've been to Sweden very recently. And to be honest, you know, their, their experience of the country is so completely different to what is coming out of this American publication on Sweden. So I think they're taking the rise in cases. But if you compare it to other countries, Sweden is not in an aberrant place. Elderly people suffer more from COVID because that's who what COVID targets. But it's not as if Sweden has young people uh, in good health who are dying of COVID, which the article seems to imply that the whole country is sort of a complete mess. But it's not a, it's not at all the case. Of course, the Swedes, and they're very honest about it, but they're making a choice to keep the country open and to follow certain de- democratic processes, which they have to in their constitution anyway, but which the country supports and which the citizens support. And what I find really interesting is that here is a grown-up democracy where the adults are making a decision saying, yeah, one part of the population is suffering slightly more, but we're going to do everything we can to protect them as much as possible, but we're going to get on with it. And another country in this particular, the press of another country and a part of the press of another country, America, where the cases are gigantic, um, Mm -hmm. 
is sort of, you know, really decrying. And I find that very, you know, it's, it, I, I just, these sort of articles, I find them so skewed. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I 100% agree with you. I, um, it's, 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 it's democracy in practice. And it's also considerate, like I the way I would like to believe democracy works um, in considering all the needs of all the community and then and then making decisions for the for the whole community rather than for a section. I I look the media has a role in a way to point to to point at the holes in an in an ideology or in in a in a in a so in a um, in a political decision, but it needs to be very very conscious of its own biases as well. I I, I couldn't agree with you more. I um I just want testing to get sorted out, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully it'll come. But uh, yeah, I yeah, suppose my I... my point is more the the panic around the numbers. I find really odd because you know you can we can talk about loads of flus in the twentieth century which no one knows anything about, but which were far more deadly. I mean, you're you're an Australian. The Hong Kong flu of nineteen sixty eight killed way 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 more people than COVID has, and no one knows a thing about it. And what's really interesting here, we're talking about 5,929 COVID deaths in Sweden so far. And they said 89% of those are over 69. Well, guess what? That's what COVID targets the most is elderly people. They're the ones who suffer the most. But it's not an aberration on the figures of last year in flu deaths. It's a bit higher, but it's not dramatically higher. It's not as if the entire elderly population of Sweden is being wiped out. Far from it. And th- this is what I find really worrying is, you know, the lack of sort of intellectual rigor and comparison in the press, it's very sensationalist. And it's great to go after a country that most Americans will know very little about, in this particular case, Sweden. You know, um, the Swedish prime minister gets more upset because all the time Sweden is called a socialist country. And he's like, come and tell us that we're, we're a socialist country. We, we practice really rigorous capitalism and we're a hyper rich country in terms of GDP, almost as rich uh, as the average Americans. And they get more upset about that. But I suppose that's my problem. I think the press is really, really not either not understanding it, which which is fine, but you know, you can pump out as many statistics and as many numbers and you know, all these rolling counts which, you know, look great on the front page of a news website. But unless you get that rigorous analysis underneath it, you're doing a lot of panicking, um, which I just don't think is accurate. I and it's not very helpful. So out of all the um out of all the brands that you're getting your news from, who do you think has actually covered COVID the best? Listen, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I, to be honest, I wouldn't say any of them because they've all changed sort of depending on, on which one did it. Um, I know there was the huge worry. So if you read the Times of London, for example, it was very pro the first lockdown and very sort of, you know, like COVID is really serious. And then all of a sudden after the first lockdown and after a bit of time, the newspaper completely changed. All the opinion pieces were like, no second lockdown. We need to get on with it. We need to, to focus on business and we need to control and protect the population as much as we can, while at the same time being really free. And that's been my experience of most uh, news sources, that they've all handled COVID very dramatically. Um, And then they've all gone into different opinions, either really, like, let's lock everything down again, or no, not this time. And so none of them has really impressed me in keeping a line. I mean, there have been more examples of sort of one or two good articles here and there, um, but I wouldn't say that any publication has has really sort of floored me with its great coverage of COVID. Uh, okay, well, well, we'll 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 keep an eye out for one that does. <laughs> Let's see if we can or find or one. Maybe there's a space for a swig of intellect news. We'll see. <laughs> 
Um, now on to, um, oh, before we go on to our time capsule, uh, the United States on Wednesday officially became the only country in the world refusing to participate in global climate efforts with the fate of the crisis hanging on the still uncalled presidential election. Uh, we, I think, you know, the timing of this is quite fascinating uh, considering I think they, they, they left the, they officially left the accord a couple of years ago, didn't they, Patrick? Three years or ago, they, in, in 2017. They announced they did and then they officially left it on Wednesday. No, so they, they left it in 2017, but the process took until until the day after the election, and now they're officially withdrawn. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's it's a funny it's a funny thing about American America is famous for, and I think it's the way the Americans see themselves. They they tend to try and avoid international treaties. Often, you know, America is one of the few countries which don't sign into arms control in the Geneva Accords and etc. Um, and it's it's a funny thing. We'll see if Biden becomes president. Let's see if it changes anything. Whether normally the Democrats, but then you have ratification. And this has always been a thing in American politics, you know, whether it was the League of Nations after the First World War, when Wilson wanted to join it, and then the Senate, you know, voted not to. And they've always been, it's always been quite complicated, for lots of reasons for Americans, either through lack of desire, or through lack of ability to get it through uh, the House of Representatives of Congress to join international treaties. Uh, I think global climate at the moment will, let's see if it's a discussion that comes back, because COVID has really taken away from it. Um, Last year, this year, sorry, before COVID hit, plastic pollution was the number one trending topic. And as we've said before, never have human beings produced so much plastic because of PPE and just dumped it everywhere. So plastic pollution in the space of a few months has completely uh, overwhelmed uh, the previous numbers. So it's rather incredible how these subjects can change so quickly. Biden did tweet a couple of days ago that he would join the Paris Accord again if he was if he became president. Of course, you know there's all these um, promises that are made during an election campaign that don't come through. But I was heartened to see that. So we'll just, I guess, we'll just wait and see. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see after after four years of Trump international policy. Um, If Biden gets in, uh, which, as we said, is looking likely, it'll be really interesting to see what, how he changes. Will he go back to the Iran Treaty? Will he try and rejoin the Paris Accords? Uh, He's definitely more of an internationalist than Trump is. So so things could change. Yeah. Yeah. And before we go on to the time capsule, you wanted to bring our read our listeners attention to um, the New York Times coverage of Macron. Yes, this is really interesting. This has really blown up in the last few days, both in France and in the UK, but in Europe in general. So after the uh, beheading of Samuel Paty, the teacher, and then the attack, the terror attack in Nice, and then now there was a big terror attack in Vienna, uh, which really shocked the, the Austrians. And Sebastian Kurz, the young president of Austria, has been calling for a pan-European response to fundamental um, Islamism. And it's really interesting because uh, the New York Times has really gone after Macron in France, basically calling him a racist and a xenophobe. And it's really infuriated people in the English press and the French press in Austria and in great parts of Europe. And a lot of people, as I've said, I'm, I'm no great fan of the New York Times coverage, not because of its political positions, but because I just generally find it gets stories incredibly wrong. And I don't know how it does it, but again, in this one, I think it's really gone after Macron in a, in a way that nothing that Macron has said is xenophobic. Quite the contrary, he's even talking about um, putting a special ambassador to go and talk to the Muslim world about his 
his policies and why he wants to focus on a shift and why he wants the respect of secularism. And the New York Times is really basically pretty much calling him a racist and a xenophobe. And this has really upset huge amounts of people in Europe. And once again, it's really interesting to see a New York newspaper, uh, which can be, which has been certainly very anti-British uh, in the last few years, which no one can deny. It's it's even liberal journalists say the New York Times really seems to have it in for the UK for whatever reason. But now they're really going after France in the same way. And I just found it really interesting. I found the response really interesting because it really infuriated a ton of people in Europe. Is it an insecurity to the fall of the American empire, maybe? Because... <laughs> And New York Times is a very confident American. Like they got, you know, as we've been discussing, they got the um, weapons of mass destruction wrong. They were, you know, they seem to always get behind the great American dream. Do you think it's 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 part of that that happening culturally? No, I think the problem with the New York Times as an institution, and I think it's been a problem with it since it was founded, is it's too close to the establishment. So it's funny because it's got the reputation for being a liberal newspaper, right? That's that's what the right in America would call it, the uber left paper. I've never found it to be a left-wing paper. And as we've discussed before, a lot of, you know, great 20th century left-wing intellectuals like Noam Chomsky and Gore Vidal, who were liberals, very much liberals, always saw the New York Times as being a very reactionary, conservative newspaper. And I think it's that funny dichotomy at the New York Times, which is it's so close to the establishment, yet at the same time, it sort of sees itself as a liberal paper with the, it's got this, you know, almost slightly schizophrenic attitude I also do think it's very uncomfortable with with Great Britain. It's always had a bit of a problem. I think that has to do with long-standing rivalry between the two and the way they do it. But I, what I always find astonishing with its journalism and what really worries me when I read the New York Times is that it's so inaccurate about the UK. It's so inaccurate in its article about France that you really worry about how inaccurate its coverage is about countries you don't live in or don't know that well. And that really makes, and I've, I've heard from other people, you know, I know from German people, for example, who would consider themselves left wing, that they find the New York Times really inaccurate about Germany. And it's just funny. I think it's a bit in that New York bubble. Um, I find a lot of New York journalism, especially, it tends to get stuck in a very bubble. It's a, there's, there, there is a mentality in that, that type of journalism. And I just think for whatever reason, as an institution, it tends to get so much wrong. It got so much wrong about the Iraq war. It got a lot of things wrong in its past. You know, it's very famous for the Stalin scandal when it refused to report in the 30s, uh, Walter Durante on the Stalin's famines and the shootings. And that all came out later that the New York Times had covered it up. And I don't, I don't know where it stems from exactly, but it's just got a funny sort of reputation. Gore Vidal, you know, for example, when he published the first gay novel in 1948, the New York Times refused to review a book of his for 30 years. And that's supposedly the New York left-wing newspaper. And my point is, it's it's not always what it says on the label. Um, mm, good point. Yeah, lots to think about there. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, so now onto our time capsule. I wanted to bring, I've, I have um, already looked at, um, we've already reviewed a jetpack, but I wanted to share this article uh, because I thought it was a really important example of sometimes things are created for fun or for just novelty, but they're not very useful. <laughs> and so uh, there's a great article here about Richard, uh, Richard Browning, uh, the creator of the working jetpack, who's a former oil trader, now entrepreneur, innovative flyer, who's um, developed, um, looking to turn the um, jetpack into a commercial uh, property, but at the same time has had a lot of struggles selling it because it's not very useful. Um, I am definitely someone who's gone and bought the latest 
BlackBerry or the latest piece of technology in the in the um, pure joy of future and innovation, but sometimes it's something I don't need in my life. So it's um, it's a great article about uh, this this man who's you know basically set up this business to commercialise these jetpacks because his dad didn't get the opportunity to follow through his dream. So he's now gone the complete opposite to realise things he's passionate about, but now is at a point in his career where he's like, I don't know how commercially viable this is. So I thought that was interesting to share. Yeah, it's quite fun. I, I always like that sort of innovation and dreaming. So I was going to do a story from the past. So since we're talking about the American election, I thought I'd, I'd uh, do a story about the most rigged election ever, which was the Liberian election of 1927. Um, so in Liberia 1927, which had just become a democracy, there were only 15,000 registered voters. But funnily enough, Charles B. King, the leader of the Whig Party, won over 243,000 votes and got 96%. Uh, now, that's obviously quite a difference uh, from the amount of registered voters. And Mr. King really seems to have motivated the turnout. Uh so quite an extraordinary victory. But even in the 1920s, it caused an absolute scandal. Um, and after winning the election, basically, uh, it was discovered that he'd been using slave labor and was actually practicing slave trading of his own population and selling them to Fernando Pau and other places. And it got so bad, his government, that the Americans suspended relations on, uh, with the country under President Herbert Hoover. And there were also discussions about placing the country under trusteeship because it, they just it was so appalling. Um, and finally, the government got removed, and there was more corruption in the next election, but not quite on the level. And what I thought was funny that it's still listed by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most fraudulent election ever. So for those of you who thought the American election would be bad, there there are examples of election which... Uh, <laughs> are quite ridiculous. Uh, That's brilliant. Thanks for sharing, Patrick. What's your shot of culture for this week? So mine is unfortunately, uh, now you know, you won't be able to go and see it, but I did want to mention it because it, it, was, it was going to be a fantastic exhibition, which hopefully if lockdown stops will still be on uh, until next year. But it's Turner's Modern World at the Tate Britain. So for those of you who've been to the Tate Britain, it has a beautiful permanent uh, Turner collection. But in this case, they did a wonderful exhibition of Turner, which is about how he... Um, encompass the changes of the Industrial Revolution and how Turner saw the transition in the 19th century from the agricultural world into the modern world. And it really would have focused on his campaigns against slavery and his paintings of the horrors of the Napoleonic Wars. And, you know, I really think Turner is one of the greatest painters England's ever produced and one of the great, greatest painters every time. And it's a beautiful exhibition. I still think uh, it's worthwhile going on the website of the Tate Britain and seeing some of the, the copies and hopefully... Uh, when lockdown ends, you have all have a chance to go and see it in person. Um. Great. No, that, that sounds really, really great. My shot of culture is a website that's just been set up to support your local bookshop during lockdown. Uh, it's un, um, the new website called Bookshop has united hundreds of UK's favourite independent bookshops, including a healthy number in London. So you can still buy reading material without your money going to some bald mega billionaire who is just going to use it to fund their new hairpiece. <laughs> The website lets you buy uh, from books um, from uh, Gaze the World and King's Cross, Tales of Moon Lane in Dulwich Hill and the V&A bookshops as well. So, uh, yes, so you can continue indulging in, in, in weird and wonderful books and supporting local businesses, which is really important. Well, that's fantastic. London is lucky to have so many independent bookshops. It'd be lovely to keep it that way. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining us for a week of intellect. I'm Lisa Gray. And I'm Patrick DeButler. See you next week. See you next week.